Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Progress Over Perfection Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Detrick, and I want to thank you for listening in. Progress Over Perfection Coaching is a podcast focused on career management and development by offering insight on how to build an intentionally balanced and purpose-filled career. I'm excited that we get to continue this year with another career deep dive. If you're new to the podcast, this is the type of episode where I bring on guests that are living successful careers to have them share their insights, experiences, and perspectives on career building and development. While the overarching themes and focus on career development will be pretty consistent throughout all my guests, my aim is to bring on guests from a diverse range of backgrounds that can lend unique insights on a particular aspect of what makes up a career. That could be a specialization in a particular field or industry, experience with certain kinds of career events, or that might be able to offer up helpful advice for others for how to grow their own careers. My guest for this episode is Amy Curry-Stashke. Amy is currently the Chief Operations Officer of Averon Interactive, has held senior leadership positions at Nike and Lululemon, and has served as a board advisor to her alma mater, Auburn University and Women Business Collective. Her experiences range from production management, quality, compliance, sourcing and manufacturing, technology product management, and operations, including a stint overseas in Hong Kong. Among her decorated career, Amy is also a wife and a mother. I always enjoy the opportunity to talk with Amy, and I can't wait for you to all get a chance to hear what she has to share. Let's get into it. Amy, thanks a lot for the time. Uh, of super, yeah, super happy to have you here uh, to talk through things. So, one of the things is we, as I bring on guests, um, obviously, in, in addition to being an amazing person that I I love talking to, um, each of the people that I bring on have something that really stands out to me in terms of um, being influential and in how I look at my own career and and approach careers in general. And so, I think for you. Um, it was really just the sense of profound humanity and compassion that you were able to show and what was undoubtedly the hardest time in my life personally or professionally. And I think Mm -hmm. in a time in a professional setting would have been really easy to just gloss over, but I think we hadn't worked together really closely. We were on the same team, but, uh, it just struck me how vulnerable you were in reaching out and, just making yourself available. So I think, mm-hmm. um, thank you for that. And I think that's what, what will always stand out to me about you. Like I said, in addition to being an incredible person and wildly successful and and have so much to give. So, so I just want to start with saying, thank you. Uh, you're making me blush, which no one can <laughs> see since they can't see me, but as a redhead, yeah, they can probably feel it. Yeah. There you go. It radiates through, <laughs> yeah. but, but yeah. So no, kind, so, Patrick. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, maybe with that, um, maybe you can walk us through your your career that you're you're currently living. Maybe what are the the high points that uh, that really stand out to you? Let's see. I think the so the the thread of my career, um, which I always feel like for most people as part of their story is where they're from. So I'm originally from Alabama, and um, I have my undergraduate degree in architecture um, from the University of Auburn, and so. I quickly after graduate school left and moved to New York City, um, much to the sadness of my mother who thought I would just stay in Alabama for forever. 
so when I moved there, I had a desire to work in the art world. I pretty quickly realized that I would not make very much money, although that's never been my goal, but enough money to pay my rent, right? So I ended up marrying the sculptor. So I vicariously lived through the <laughs> art world with him. Uh, but I happened to get into the art world, but also into sourcing and manufacturing. So I worked for Sotheby's Auction House and uh, did a lot of the production of their coffee table books and catalogs and things. My father, it's always interesting what makes us do what we do in our lives, right? Um, my father is a fantastic salesman and he worked in manufacturing for a long time. So I'm sure there's a lot of influences there. Um, and then my mother comes from a really extended family in Florence, Alabama, a lot of whom worked in the factories in Alabama, in jeans factories and Lee jeans, actually. So both in New York City and then when I left New York into um, Burton Snowboards and other jobs I've had, which I'll kind of quickly describe, there's been that definite thread around a bit of sustainability, as it's called now, but just thinking about the labor force behind what we do and the people behind our products and how they're made and how those those communities and those people are considered. Um, so, so yeah, so in New York, that's what I did there for many years and then kind of did the antithesis, moved to Burlington, Vermont, out of the big city into the little tiny city, which is the best little tiny city in uh, America, in my opinion, and worked at Burton, uh, which was fantastic, small, uh, privately owned, you know, action sports company, and also a thread in my career is around fitness and health and wellness. And although I am and was the world's worst snowboarder, um, <laughs> not a lot of snow sports in Northern Alabama as a child, uh, but the culture of the company was something that always left an impression on me. Just very, Jake and Donna ran that as a family from like their sons giving out pumpkin pies and things at Thanksgiving, you know, and and other things. So that was a great experience. And from there, I went to Lululemon uh, right when they were going public um, to both do sourcing and manufacturing for them, but also to work in sustainability. And I know you wanted to talk a lot about career and how we pivot and change yeah. and do different things. Um, I technically, formally didn't have experience in sustainability, but yet I had a passion around it. And I think that's an important thread as we continue to talk as passion and ambition can make up for formal education uh, nine times out of 10. And especially for sustainability in the late 90s and early 2000s, it really wasn't a lot of formal education. And so I was really excited, especially considering my family history that I described to pair owning a large spend for a company or a corporation around their manufacturing and production, but then also using that to be thoughtful and ethical around the labor and environmental side of the people that produce those products. And um, so that's what I was able to do at Lululemon and being a runner and a yogi, it was kind of my, <laughs> my dream to be able to work for Lulu. My husband snowboards. And so Burton was his, <laughs> not my job, but my, I'm so stoked that we're doing this. So that was his. So, so yeah, I was at Lululemon for about six years, which was a fantastic experience and many stories in and of itself. Um, and then from there, when I was eight months pregnant with my daughter, Grace, uh, I took a job at Nike, which again is its own story too, because usually as a woman, you really don't think that when you're pregnant, it's the best time to interview, <laughs> but I did. And uh, I was offered a job at eight months pregnant and I took it and I stayed in Canada and had our baby uh, with my husband. And then we went to Nike. And so that's obviously where you and I met and yeah. 
um, had a really fantastic and enjoyable 10-year career there in manufacturing and sustainability and technology, actually, towards the end of my time there. Um, and then I came across an offer that I just couldn't not want to be a part of, which was to join a startup. And I had never been a part of a startup. And so I currently work at Averon, which is a rowing machine company in the connected fitness space um, based in Toronto and really just an amazing company with amazing people. And when I met the founder, Andy, and his uh, partner and co-founder, Anessa, they, as it always is, it's the people, right? And so I really just fell in love with them and their ethos and how they run the company. And so I've been there since, um, I think, March of this year, so 10 months as their COO. So if there's anything I can impart from that, hopefully it's an example of you can have a pretty wide and varied career. You know, I'm the little girl from Alabama who has a bachelor's from the School of Architecture, <laughs> working yeah. in manufacturing and sourcing and sustainability and technology. So yeah, that's uh, that's the quick professional story of Amy. Yeah, no, that's great. And I, I think with that too, what stands out is it, a lot of the places you've worked have been like destinations for a lot of people in terms of like places that are, I mean, you even said like amazing places to work. So is there mm -hmm. anything you can talk about kind of those pivot points, like when you knew it was right to leave one opportunity for another, like to, to kind of leave one great opportunity, one great culture, great people. What are the mm -hmm. things that you considered for those pivots in terms of what you were able to gain and, and how you made, how, how you did the math? Sure. Um, at least for me, I think early in my career, it was easier for me to just follow my nose, you know, because when you're early in your career, you can just explore and you can try different things. And um, not that that can't be the case um, as you go on in your career. But when I think of those different pivots, I, and it's funny, I was running with a good friend this morning, Dre Wood, uh, who you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were talking actually about our love and desire to start new things. And and I I recognize, and I used to be uncomfortable admitting that, especially in a business environment, because I, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, people are going to say like, she can't execute or she can't <laughs> stay or she's not focused. But there's, there's anything wrong with that, you know, of acknowledging that uh, a strength and a passion is to innovate and start something new and build something new. And then the execution of that, while also enjoyable, may not be as enjoyable, you know, as it is um, on the other side. So when I look at my career, there was usually kind of this four or five year moment where I loved being in the companies I was in and uh, definitely learned a lot from them. I feel like I gave a lot of good value back to them. But it was also at a time too, where my husband and I didn't have um, our daughter yet. So we felt pretty mobile and, you know, we could mm -hmm. go and cruise and try, try new adventures and try different things. So that was a, that was a part of it, um, but also professionally, it was the ability to kind of have different experiences and and follow what felt like you know was the guiding compass for me a little bit around the sustainability piece, yeah, around being able to work with great teams, develop um, develop teams, and develop people. So, yeah, maybe the flip side to that question: Have you had opportunities that have come about where? you had to make the tough decision to not take them or not pursue them or, or things that kind of, like you're saying where your nose maybe helped be that deciding factor to say, maybe this isn't right or not right for me now. It is. There's a coach I had once, and I always think about this thing that she described where 
she talked about uh, everything in life is a system. And so uh, nature is a system, work environments are systems, families are systems. Each system has their own language and each system has behaviors and ways to reward those behaviors. And our job, if we put it in the professional context, is to always be cognizant of the system we are in. And then we have to make the decision of, do we want to continue to be in that system or not? And so that's helped me a lot over the years, because I think sometimes when we get in different work environments, if it's not our ideal work environment and we, because we've all been there, (laughs) we find it frustrating and we try to change it and we can't change it. Or we try to carve one path and the, you know, the universe isn't having it and it's sending you down this route. Um, It's, it's been a learning for me that, you know, sometimes, okay, it's like, this is, this is just the way it might be here in this team or in this Mm. company. And so, so maybe it's time, it's time to go and try something else and something different. It's not false, you know, it's not that one's better than the other, but just as our skills grow and as things change over time, um, I think we have to be aware of that, right? Because in other words, we can be getting our head, banging our head against a wall, right? Of trying to have a job or a position be something that it's not. Yeah. I think that's really important perspective. I think that can, like you're saying, like kind of help prevent that sense of maybe it's something wrong with me that I'm the problem. Yeah. Right. No, that's great. Um, Kind of on that sense of there being systems and every work environment is its own system that I think it's pretty common. Maybe in your experience, I think maybe more, more stereotypically, it's common that it's really the the what you deliver in those systems and in a job and kind of the how much you deliver or what what's really kind of rewarded and what gets you to that next step. And I think there's you've as you talk through your career, there's no question that you can you can do that well. But I think again, it's what stands out as being exceptional about you, as I remember you, is your how and kind of how you approach that. And I'm wondering, can you talk a little bit about how you come up with your approach and how you you don't let the the execution and and the KPI and the metric be how you show up? Yeah, I uh, I think it's a something too that I would attribute probably to my my dad, who I'm sure I will probably end up inadvertently referencing often. <laughs> he he is the master at pulling other people out from the background and and getting them to be their best selves and that can be the checkout woman at the grocery store you know it's it's not Mm -hmm. like it has to be people he's known for a long time he's just exceptionally good at it and was in his career and just as in life and i can remember as a child even almost to the point of embarrassment you know where you're at a restaurant he's got to know the life story of our waiter and (laughs) it's like okay dad (laughs) this is not necessary but I really appreciate that about him a lot. And uh, he actually just went through open heart surgery. And mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of like watch, doing laps with him on the sixth floor of the of the hospital as he was recovering. And there he is in his messed up bed hair and his hospital gown with the back out on his walker, which he hates, like doing laps around other patients, but cheering them on and saying like, come on. And anyway, he's mm-hmm. just an, an amazing um, example in that way. But that's translated a lot into into how I work because I will always, no matter how confident I may be, I will always be the little girl from Alabama. And that's not that that's a bad thing Mm -hmm. in my mind, but 
but it's a humility, I think, piece and a and a humbleness too. But part of that is is being able to to bring people together. I find immense enjoyment in collaboration because then you get to be curious about other people. And I I personally am really fascinated in other people's stories and other people's journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, even when I had that first job in New York City that I referenced and you know, it's my first big girl job and I've got my suit and I've got my high heels and, you know, I'm walking the streets like I'm something. And I remember when I first met the CEO of the company at the time. And so of course in my mind, I'm thinking, Oh, he's going to be so smart and he's amazing. And he's the superhero. And of course he was a smart man. But as I got to know him over the first weeks and stuff, I realized, well, damn, he's just, he's just a person, Mm. you know, he's a person with a story and, uh, he's, he's just in many ways, like the rest of us. And so I think that even started that curiosity early in my career. Well, if he's just, you know, a person like me and he has this really cool job, well then why can't I, or the inverse of the woman who's his EA and like, why can't, why his executive assistant, you know, why can't she also be CEO? And so I think it's really fun to hear people's stories and understand the potential that other people have and to give them a, a platform to realize it. And in my opinion, too, we I've only realized that by having that provided to me and also having it taken away from me um, mm. because we've also been in job situations. I think that's a safe assumption, right? Where we haven't had managers who um, provide that for us. And sometimes that's how we learn best, right? Is through the the harder moments and times. And so it's yeah. been realizations of, hmm, that that is not how I'm going right. to lead people or be peers with people or work as, alongside people. Um, so I think that's that's a part of it, right? Is like having that collaboration and forget titles, ranges, or wherever people are, but just bringing everybody together and seeing everyone's skill set to contribute um, to whatever the goal is in the moment. Yeah, I think a couple of things from that that I really loved is, like you were saying, you see something that you don't like, and at the very least, it's almost the the bigger gift than finding something that you you want to attach to. It's like, a, nope, I can check that off my list. I that is not how I'm going to be, and I don't want that. And Mm-hmm. kind of be very conscious about that but I also loved, loved how you talked about the CEO and you know we all see these people that are in these positions where they're put on a pedestal and I think the perspective that you brought that I heard was it, it's more about understanding the, their humanity and and instead of creating that divide lifting everybody else up saying that everybody else can do that same that same thing um a hundred percent. And I will issue the disclaimer too, that as I talk about these things, I will, you know, say that I've made my more than my share, <laughs> fair, of mis- share, share fair of mistakes. And uh, I've also learned through those along the way, along the way too. There was one example, which stands out to me from my career. And I think the, the advice I would impart in this is always trust your, trust your gut that things that you take as common, meaning, oh, I, I think this, but I'm sure everybody else thinks this mm. way, or mm-hmm. I assume this, so I'm, I'm sure everyone else does this, that usually those those types of things may not be common. So just a fast example of, of something that was a learning for me was 
at a time when I worked at Lululemon and I was helping to stand up what we thought of as sustainability, we had a an annual meeting. So we had everybody, you know, in, in town and I had to talk about what we did around sustainability. And so as with most things, but especially sustainability, that relies on the actions of others. There's no way mm. one person can run sustainability. So I tend to do my best thinking uh, for presentations at least 24 hours before it actually happens. <laughs> That's always a nice cushion of time for me to uh, think about it. So I realized I thought, man, it'd be amazing. I can tee it up. But wouldn't it be great to go grab the two, three dozen people who have been major contributors and give them kind of a couple of, everyone says the same lines of, hey, mm. I'm I'm Amy. And we had it something around personal responsibility, which was company language at Lulu. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year I took personal responsibility to X, which achieved Y. But then that's it. And then you would just have everyone cycle through, but stay on stage so that then mm. everyone sees who all contributed. And in my mind, that was just a really simple, easy, logical way to, to do that, you know? And so mm-hmm. I whispered to everybody and was passing notes in the <laughs> in the conference uh, hall we were in. And so we did, you know, so we did that. And as I were all coming off the stage and sitting back down, I remember like the leaders at the time, some of them, like their mouths were even open. They were like, that was amazing. And I'm thinking in my head, what? Like, why are they so happy or why are mm. they so why are they so awestruck by, by something as simple as that and and then afterwards when i talked to some of them and they said that was a phenomenal way to showcase the work of others and so it was just an interesting lesson to me one like i said of we have to trust our guts as leaders sometimes mm-hmm. and and if i if i feel fortunate enough to say that i i enjoy collaboration and i perhaps have a strength at it that I just assumed up until that point in my career, that was something that everyone did. But then I realized, okay, this is something, A, I enjoy it, but B, it likely makes me good at my job. And, and I realized it wasn't common, you know, once I Mm -hmm. saw the reactions from people. So, so feedback in whatever form we get it in our career, right, is really important because we need people intentionally or unintentionally to help remind us, you know, what, our strengths are, you know, you and I have talked about strengths before and like, yeah. what are our strengths? Um, and then of course the inverse, right. Of where things are, where we can be perhaps a bit, a bit better. Yeah. No, I like that. It's a, uh, I like the way that you frame that. Cause it almost feels like the, the inverse of what, you know, you hear people say of like, if you have a question, ask it. I'm sure everybody else has that same question. It's like, a, no, if you have an idea, don't take for granted that everybody else thinks that it's commonplace. Like bring that, <laughs> bring that up, bring that, bring that, forward. So I think um, kind of a, a useful challenge to what people might just write off is no, you know, somebody else probably thought of it as, and they probably haven't said it because it's a dumb idea. So I'm not going to do it. So. Right. Right. Yeah. Just trust, trust your instinct, right? Trust. Yeah. Your... Yeah. And I think um, I love that example that you had from, from Lulu and just kind of the highlighting the the team and kind of bringing mm-hmm. the team forward. And so kind of shifting gears a little bit, like, that's how I've known you as well in terms of being an advocate for others. And uh, in particular at Nike being part of, you know, women's leadership teams. And I'm wondering, Mm -hmm. you know, you've been at a few different companies in the the sporting goods apparel or action sports kind of space. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, we could go, I'm sure a long time and there are much more qualified podcasts to talk about it, but can you talk about your experience with kind of gender bias in that space over the span of your career and kind of Mm -hmm. how it's changed? And I think, 
what can people do that's maybe easy a, a, a small easy thing none of it's going to be easy because it's a it's a system to work against but mm-hmm. just love your thoughts in terms of how you've seen it change and and where you see opportunities yeah we could talk a long time about that <laughs> <laughs> uh if i start with burton uh, and you know this was part of my own learning too and my leadership of knowing your system right and where you're in i worked at burton in the early 2000s and it is a privately held action sports company. So is it going to be the most PC place to work? <laughs> no, it's not. And that's okay. Um, but I I think I had my own kind of overly Joan of Arc moments, you know, when certain things would occur that would occur in a privately held, you know, action sports company. And I'm sure at the time I probably didn't handle them in the best of way of being a little too Joan of Arc of, you know, we, we... We have to give some, depending on the ethos of the company, people have to have the freedom to express themselves. And it's snowboarding too, right? So it's that that's 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 what it is. It's not necessarily always intended to be um, a very PC and appropriate environment. So mm-hmm. those were also different days, right? That was an earlier time. And that because that what I just said could hold for it doesn't even have to be a snowboard company. It could be any company. Sure. Um, before like the Me Too movement and a lot of things started. Um, I would say so much has changed in how how people look at gender and gender equality when it comes to leadership. And even at Burton, I was fortunate to be part of a women's leadership program that Donna um, Carpenter had set up. So Burton had really good uh, actions around that, even in the early days. You know, of how do we how do we take women with the acknowledgement that we need more women in leadership and and elevate that. Um, at, at Nike, there's a lot of good efforts in that space too. Um, I think the best thing that we can do, I'll use an example I shared at a, at a talk once at at a particular company where I was in a talent planning meeting and, you know, obviously multiple genders are in this meeting and in this discussion, I was in a talent planning meeting and someone brought up an individual and they said, Hey, uh, I recommend this individual for a promotion. And another person in the room piped up and said, well, you know, that person is very quiet and they don't talk a lot. And I don't think that they're, they're worthy of a promotion because they're just, they're quiet. They lead too quietly. Mm. And so one would think that that would be a woman because that's how, you know, women can sometimes be seen or portrayed as leaders, but it actually was a man. And it was one of the most uh, respected um, leaders within the teams that the teams deeply believed in. He was a fantastic and still is a fantastic advocate for people, but because he didn't fit this norm in Mm. the company of this is a leader and they sound like this and this is their gender and this is how they behave. This is how they sit in meetings, blah, 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 blah. Regardless of gender, they weren't considered a leader. So I think in the, past probably five, six years, that's been a big focus of a lot of women's leadership groups and different companies is if you're only going to focus on women's leadership, you're not going to get as far as you might want, right? It's just around the equity to the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So if we make sure that everyone has equity to the opportunity and we're really open to it and we'd have the right structures in place, you know, to help make that happen, then that's where things start to change because you see a lot of 
women's initiatives and women's groups, but it they're swinging the pendulum too hard in, in one direction. So I think there's something, there's a great conversation that that's started around leadership and how leadership can't be one personality or one character type, but it has to, it, you know, diverse teams. It's very, it's very yeah. simple, many, right? Diverse voices, diverse teams give you the best results. And so it's just how you build it. Yeah. It's a long, it can be a long conversation. I know. So many yeah. threads for that one. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, with, I mean, to carry that further, I mean, not like we need more meat to, <laughs> to leave dangling here because we won't right. be able to get into it. But I think too, just that idea of kind of uh bias for, for similarity when you look at even like mm-hmm. hiring for like cultural fit, right? The, the idea that, well, you want a good cultural fit. Well, then you were looking for one very specific thing that like a very specific mold that um, mm-hmm. maybe doesn't yield the best results or, or maybe speaks to kind of that environment that you just talked about where certain individuals are discounted because they don't meet certain expectations or, or fit a certain type. Right. And it's deeply complicated, right? Cause it's generations of unconscious behaviors that we're trying to unspool. And we all are, it's, it's not as if we're just pinning this on white men. I mean, we're, we all have biases and we all are either aware or not aware of them. So yeah, it takes, this is where, you know, L and D teams and training and, and not training in the painful sense, but, you know, even I got a lot out of the unconscious bias training I've done because it's mm. helped me realize, oh, well, I might like this one particular candidate because she's a lot like me or I think, right. you know, we, <laughs> so, um, but that of course then requires the person receiving the training to be open to, to what they're learning. So yeah, L and D teams have a, good job or learning and development teams have good job security for right yeah (laughs) for the near term yeah I think on that sense of self-awareness is there anything that you would have as advice in terms of maybe you've learned as you've gone through the trainings to help make sure that you're receptive and open to to receiving that kind of training in the right way I think just the like I said the acknowledgement and knowledge that this way to solve equality to opportunities in the workplace isn't up to just one individual or one Mm. age group or one gender group or one leadership team. And we all have to think about it. I even had an example of um, one of my teams, um, a young man who's kind of at the manager level was hiring four analysts and three of the positions were open. And so I said, Hey, come, come with a slate of candidates and let's talk through it. So he came with a slate of candidates and for each role, he had four open open slates, open spots, and three were men and one were women in each of the slates. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, we always lead with questions, right? Help me understand your logic. Take, mm-hmm. me, take me through this. And so he's like, well, this guy, you know, here he reached out. He was really proactive and I uh, had just gotten wind of it, you know, before we even posted the job. So I think he would be great. And, you know, the other guy in my mind, I knew was a lot like the manager. Mm-hmm. And so I could see why he landed. And so I said, well, why, why aren't there more, more women or people of color? Why isn't it more diverse? And he said, well, this is just where I landed. And we didn't have a really diverse uh, applicant group. And I said, okay. I said, do you know anyone that would be amazing for these jobs? That's not on the list. That is more diverse. And he said, of course, there's this person, this person, that person. And I said, well, go talk to them. Tell them that you think they'd be great for this job and that they should apply. And he thought, okay. And so he did. And so it was about 80% of the people he reached out to did apply. 
And for two of the four roles, we ended up hiring those people. So, so I think it just takes extra, Hmm. it takes effort too. You know, it takes, it takes effort by HR and recruitment and then the manager themselves, because in some cases, you know, maybe someone isn't aware of the job and needs to be made aware of it. Or with one of the women, she was, we'd known her for a long time, but she was really shy and she lacked a little bit of confidence, but we knew she was a rock star. And we we said, you know, we said, you should, you should think about this job because we think you'd be great at it. And that gets back to our accountability to no matter our role or position to be advocates for people and speak up for people and give people opportunity. And it's up to them, right? If they take it, but it's up to us to open that door enough that they can stick their foot in it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. Cause I think too often there's that excuse of, well, the, the pool was just shot. The candidate pool was just shallow. We didn't have a lot to draw from. So really takes that excuse off the table. And like you're saying too, it's still mm-hmm. up to the candidates. Once they get reached out to it's up to them, but mm-hmm. it's doing more than just saying, well, if they apply, then they're interested. And if not, then we'll go with what we've got. Mm-hmm. And then to continue building a great team that's diverse and doesn't have bias, then there's work that we have to do as we're hiring, right? And I think that's a, it's a shift and a change in how we interview sometimes because our interviews may be more focused around the job or mm. uh, skill set, but now being more focused on, you know, how do they, how do they define a diverse team and what does that mean and how does advocacy for your your team look and you know so it's i think it's just an additional lens we have to put on because then they're the pipeline of the future so if we're not bringing in people that have that same approach then or at least are open to being you know more thoughtful about that then you're just going to perpetuate the same yeah yeah and this is this is kind of a we're kind of riffing a little bit now but I, i wonder um that dimension of work and thinking about teams very much feels like, uh, you know, if we were to split up that, those buckets into like the, what the, how, and the, how much, it very much feels like it's in the how, mm. but I wonder if, if there's a way to, or I'd be curious for your thoughts, if there's a way to blend that. So that doesn't become the how so much anymore. It's just the, what, like it's no longer, like it's just ingrained in it. It's not this separate thing that you then have to try and balance and try and think of, Oh, are we being, are we getting a diverse team? Are we thinking about things in an unbiased way? That just becomes natural. Is Do you see a path to that kind of structural shift, I guess, if we're talking in systems? Mm-hmm. I do. I mean, I think right now, one of the beauties of the startup that I'm at is uh, it's a startup, right? We're in the very <laughs> early stages of the company. And so the founders have done a great job of establishing values. And they've been really clear, which is part of the reason I left Nike to go there, right? They've been really clear about what their values are and what's important. And we talk about it a lot as a company and even how now we're doing our year in CFE process more formally than it's mm-hmm. been done before. So we're looking at values. We talk about values at all of our meetings. So when we think about the what and the how to your question, yeah, even in execution, um, the the values component is can be woven into both of those elements. Um, we had a situation recently where we were talking to a vendor who would be executing work for us. And that 
even apply in my mind that applies when you're especially when you're about to set up a partnership with someone externally if they don't share your values then that partnership is potentially you know gonna have and as much time as you've spent in kind of the manufacturing and sourcing world too you understand that um but i don't and i think sometimes when people are looking at the external business partnerships it doesn't come up as much as you would think Mm. so so yeah the the values component should very much be be woven into that and you can still separate the how and the what from Mm. like the strategic strategic and the execution but um yeah i would say you'd want you want values woven into into everything you do yeah i think too that that becomes like a maybe what people mean that hasn't come across, but I think that's where that bias for similarity could come from too, is like, you want that, you want the same values. You don't necessarily want behaviors to be the same or, or other, Mm -hmm. other dimensions where there could be similarity, but do we, are we working towards the same thing in the same way? Do we hold the same things to be important? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's important to what you're describing that there are values that are somehow centered around diversity of thought or mm-hmm. feedback or being egoless um one of the best teams i've ever been able to work with was a team i had right as i was leaving nike and we had really complicated technical projects that we were doing and patrick they were they were amazing sometimes i would sit back and watch them almost in awe <laughs> but i realized over time because i thought i you know i was thinking i'm like damn man i gotta get this figured out <laughs> what, what, why are they working so well but it was because they, it like warms my heart even a little bit to think of them. They were not just a tight knit group, but they were a group that deeply respected each other. And it was a, a mix of business mm. experts, engineers, developers, subject matter experts. I mean, a whole swath of people, but they were really honest with each other and they mm. respected each other, but they had brutal honesty amongst themselves. And and deep passion for what they did. And so as we were developing these technical products and new features, if something didn't work, one of them would look at the other one, no matter if, you know, who was in the room and they would say, I don't know if that's the best idea you've had all month, you know? And, <laughs> and then we'd sort stuff through and they they were just really successful in that way. And we had a work environment where people could do that and there was no repercussion or punishment or Mm-hmm. People could elevate risks and they were rewarded for elevating the risk and not penalized because a risk was yeah. present. And yeah, especially in an agile technical environment, they were just great. I, I miss them. I don't know if you do this, but of all the people I've worked with in my career, and I joke with friends about this, Dre and I were joking about it on the run this morning. It's like the A team, you know, or, or right. your, your oh, ideal. Yeah. It's like, oh, I take these people, these people, and <laughs> you put them all in this imaginary company or space and lord knows what you could accomplish build your super team yeah 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 oh man that's awesome yeah i think those those characteristics are important so so even though within that very cross-functional team we i mean we were within the same company so of course we had similar company values Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about values as much but um i would say we probably very much had them to go back to your point of um you know how you how you make sure those those elements are are present. Yeah, that's great. So I think maybe um, shift gears a little bit um, to one of the other things that I really remember about you that stands out was, I remember um, that you had a rule at work that was Hmm. you had to leave 
every day. It was non-negotiable. You left every day to make sure that you could be home to tuck Grace into bed every night. And mm-hmm. I love that. Um, mm. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about kind of how, how was it setting that boundary, knowing that you're in a, in a culture that rewards your work output. You're basically mm-hmm. saying, I'm, I'm taking some me time. You might log on later. You probably will log on later after that, but this is non-negotiable time. How does it feel to set that boundary? Um, you know, early in my career and my husband's same way, we were very, just really enjoy our careers. And so to use the word, I guess we were very, very career driven, right? And um, our families were in Alabama. We were in New York City or other places. So we spent a lot of time just focused on on our career and our friends and and working hard and enjoying it. Um, and this goes back to, you know, when we learn about people and their life journeys, life is a journey and different things come our way. And when I was about to get my master's degree while I was at Lululemon, my husband reminded me, he said, you know, if we're going to have kids, because we for a long time, we didn't really want to. We were actually kind of kind of baby haters for a while, but <laughs> we warmed up to it and uh, he's like, yeah, we might need to do this soon mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than later. So um, when in my own journey, what's given me a lot of insight into what's important and how I prioritize is when I was at Lulu, I was uh, pregnant and I gave birth to our son, whose name is August. And he had a very rare brain disorder and he passed away when he was five days old. And no one foresees those things and no one should, no, no parent should outlive their children. You know, I'd, at many times, you know, it's, I, I just don't even try to describe it because there, there are not words for it. Um, but that experience of, of losing our son was, it brought me many learnings. And sometimes I don't even like to describe them as learnings because it's, Again, it's very difficult sometimes mm-hmm. to have language for those types of things. Um, but it, what it what I do always carry with me, I'll put it that way, is a, a deep clarity for what's important. Because I remember leaving the hospital in the dark parking garage without my child and looking out on the sunny street in Vancouver, British Columbia, from the back of my car and seeing all these people, you know, just walking around doing their thing. It was painful, like the sunlight was painful. And all every you know, you you just re-examine. And I don't know if you re-examine, you just really are aware. You're very hyper-conscious of mm. of what you're doing and what you're thinking, of who's around you and what's important. And that has stayed with me for a very long time. And it always it always probably will. So it helps me that experience with my son gives me endless permission for me to <laughs> take a stand for what I know to be important. Because in those very hard moments, um, my husband looked at me once and he said, we have to simplify our life. Mm-hmm. And this was before we even lost our son. And I know I knew he didn't have to say more because I knew what he meant of, yeah, arguing over who didn't wash the saucer and the sink and <laughs> You know, the things that consume yeah. our, our energy and what we do, it's pointless. And we have to, we all get to those spaces in our life when we hit those different 
bottoms of not behaving as we should or being who we should. Um, but I realized I didn't want to spend the rest of my life. I didn't want to waste anything and I wanted to spend it as thoughtfully as I could. So, um, that gives me that permission to do that. So I am really clear, especially when I started to go back to work after that, because nothing seems more useless or pointless or obtuse than talking about inventory and merchandise when you've just lost your child. Like it's mm-hmm. it's very difficult. But again, it's a, it's an it's a hyper consciousness of of what is important or not. And and so I my own my own path for that and is to be really specific around my my priorities are my family, my health, um, and then my job kind of comes comes right after that. So my health, uh, I need to move and <laughs> If I don't exercise six days a week, I'm a grumpy, grumpy gal. <laughs> so 4.30 to 6.30 every day. I'm a morning person, but mm-hmm. that's my time. So I get up at 4.15. I run or I do yoga or I do something um, in those two hours. And I love it. It's like my <laughs> quiet time. The world is asleep. No one is out. The sun's not up. And it's the most beautiful, beautiful time of day for me. And so that's my pull my head together and exercise and move and be healthy and take care of myself. And so then by 6.30, my family's up. So 6.30 to 7.45, getting family out the door, getting Grace fed, all that good stuff. Yeah. So then 7.45 comes, Grace is left school. So then I start Averon, uh, Nike, whoever it may be. I'll work until six at the most, shut everything down. And then uh, I'm with them until eight until we kind of put her to bed. And are there some nights where I might log back on or is there a night sometimes, you know, where I have to say, hey, Grace, why don't you read a book beside me while <laughs> sure. just some emails yeah. for sure. But it's not an every night thing because, again, I want to be with if I only see my child a couple and my husband a couple times, a couple of hours during the day. I want it to be thoughtful and, and a good time. So I also don't do a lot of work at night because if mm-hmm. I'm getting up at 415, then I kind of need to be asleep by 930. But I find that it that it works, and I I have taken a lot of inspiration from other both women and men who you just it's I call it uh, this one other friend who does this really well. I joke that she has a machete. Mm-hmm. We joke that it's a mother of pearl machete, but she does. <laughs> she blazes paths on her company because a lot of people don't take a stand, and so she has three children. So she takes a big stand for hey. I'm going to work from home this day. I'm still going to be really productive, but Mm. I'm going to be at home so I can take my child to their first day of school or I can do this or I can do that. And she, that thing gives everyone though permission to do it. That's on her team. And then that spreads, right? Mm. It spreads like wildfires, like, Hey, you know, she's doing that. So that means that we can do it. Or, Hey, she did their call as a walk and talk. I don't have to be on zoom on my butt for (laughs) 10 (laughs) hours a day. Like let's have a walk and talk. So I, uh, it's a very long answer to your question, but I, I just feel really confident from the journey that I've had that I know what's important and I will be the best person I can be for whatever company I work for. But my purpose is not my job. My mm. job is a vehicle for my purpose. Um, but my purpose is bigger than just my job. Yeah. Thank you so much for, again, being vulnerable in that space and sharing so much. And I think so many, so many good things to pull from that that are so applicable. I think um, 
I mean, just the the intentionality and the about about prioritizing, I think, is so important. About knowing what's important and taking the time to to assess that, and then being very intentional too. I think is is such a powerful a powerful way to not manage your life, but to make sure that you're you're doing right by you. Mm-hmm. Um, I love to. I want to like go back and highlight that idea of of the leader setting the example, I think too, because you're not getting back online. You're, you're not signaling to your team that that's the expected behavior as well. It's a Mm -hmm. do the work for the day. The work will be there tomorrow. Do, do good work while you're working, but but don't just, uh, don't just more isn't necessarily better. Um, no. And usually it's not right. Cause we all know what it's like to work at nine 30 at (laughs) night. We're tired. You're used we, to sending the the angry emails. You have to go retract the next day. Yeah. What do you mean? I've never done that before. <laughs> yeah, you're totally right. We're not. And I think that's the purpose, right? We want to be our best selves in this life. And if we're working 14 hours a day, it's probably not when we're our best selves. Like we're our best selves when we're outside or with our family or whatever it is that yeah. gives us that gives us energy. Yeah. I know we're we're almost at time, so I like to wrap up um, hearing the coolest thing that you've ever done in your career. <laughs> However, you want to define cool. What is the what's the biggest thing that left you the most awestruck? Like this is my career. This is awesome, or I love this. I I think I my answer would be when I look back or when I explain the thread of my career from like Alabama and architecture and the art world and. <laughs> manufacturing and sourcing and sustainability and technology. And and now I have an immense passion around food and I feel it in my soul. Like I really, mm. I want, I want, whether it's board roles or whatever it may be, or actual next position potentially. Um, I, I, I feel it like I want to go there. And so I think that's been really cool, you know, and I'm sure part of it's due to me, part of it's due to luck, part of it's due to a number of other factors, but I think it's been really cool that I've, had these really disparate yet connected and very different experiences they've been really fun and for myself as a learner and someone that always wants to be learning something new and doing something different uh, I feel really fortunate to be able to have done it that's great any um anything you wish you'd known earlier on in earlier on in your career not necessarily like from a mistake or a misstep but you would just wish that man, I wish that I had been able to put this into place or think about things this way earlier because it's been so beneficial that you'd like to share. Uh, be human. <laughs> and I, I guess the double click to that is like, it's okay to be human and show that you're not perfect. And I don't know if I attribute it to my good Southern upbringing of <laughs> sit up straight and don't chew with your mouth open. But <laughs> I mean, really early in my career, I was really horrible at that. And I had a great uh, manager or sponsor actually at Burton, this guy, Edward Giard. And I had just kind of started there and I had a team and small team. And he did one of those things that mentors and coaches do. This was actually through Burton's women's leadership program that I was fortunate to work with him. Um, But he told told me what to do, but indirectly through a story. Mm. And so I was telling them about a challenge I had with my team and I also didn't know how to snowboard and I was really self-conscious that, and I, and I, I sucked at it. And so I was, <laughs> I was all mentally wrapped up in my ego around that. And 
he started telling me the story in his office one day. And I didn't admit that, of course, because I wasn't quite that mature at that point. But he could sense it. And so he said, you know, when I used to work at Quicksilver, I was really awful at surfing. And so I let my teen take me out to teach me surfing one day. And I had water in my nose and sand in my ears. And as Edward's telling me this story, I'm sitting there thinking, why the hell is he telling me this? <laughs> like, <laughs> why do I, why do I care? But of course, 24 hours later, as I was thinking about it, I'm like, hmm. Ah, yeah. I get it. <laughs> so, and you know, when when talking about my son, like that's that was about as human as I could get, and that's forever changed me. Probably, and it sounds very bizarre to say it, but at least for me individually, it's probably changed me for the better. So, that would be my advice: of just hmm. it's really okay to be human. It's okay to ask questions. It takes courage and maturity to say you don't know something. Because mm. usually other people don't, you know, sometimes <laughs> they don't know it too. Yeah. And that's, so, so yeah, be human and just be brave. That's great. Well, thank you so much. One last opportunity is there or for you, is there anything that you are particularly involved in or other ways that people can find you to, to learn more about you or things that you're interested in or anything open platform here for anything you'd like others to know more about that maybe you're passionate about? Uh, I'm super passionate around leadership, which is why it's great to talk to you and just how collectively we can create forums and ways and paths for other people to be their best self. That is a huge, a huge passion. And so just talking to you about this is great. I'm on LinkedIn. Anyone's welcome to reach out and contact me there. Uh, I am launching something super fun with my daughter called motherdaughtercooking.com. Uh, this is partially to support my daughter's immense passion around food, but also mine as well. So it's a little project that we're starting to talk about food, talk about family, and also to talk about farms and how we support small and mid-sized food producers. So that'll be live in about a week. So people can check it out and reach me there too. Perfect. Yeah, that's, that's great. Once it's live, um, we'll go back and we'll put the link in the show notes and everything so we can make sure it's easy to find for people. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Patrick, so wonderful to speak with you. Yeah, thank you, Amy, so much for your time. So far, all these career deep dive interviews have gone by so quickly while in the moment, and this one was no different. There was so much more to dive into, and that hour hardly seemed like enough to scratch the surface. One thing I did want to touch on that was alluded to, but I didn't go into detail while we were recording, was that low moment in my career that eventually led to me connecting with Amy. The short story is that my wife and I lost our first daughter after spending a year and a half of trying to start a family. That's when Amy reached out to me just to let me know that there was someone else that I knew that was going through uh, what I was going through and that she was there if I ever needed her. Not that she knew the details of what I was going through specifically or that she presumed to know how how I was feeling, but she did know what it was like to come back to a work environment filled with people that had the luxury of not knowing how to relate to me in this regard. I said it in the beginning of my conversation with Amy, and it absolutely holds true that her reaching out was one of the most profound acts of humanity and connection that I've experienced to to that point in my life and since. I say all this because the loss of my daughter was extremely formative for how I view purpose and meaning, be it specific to career or more general to life. I also say this because I've come to learn that this kind of tragedy is far more common than one might believe because it isn't something that's easy to talk about. Not to overshadow anything unless Amy and I, or Amy had to say, 
but I want to put an open offer out there for anyone to reach out that may need someone to talk to because they're going through something similar in their life. I'm not a mental health professional, and I do suggest that if you are going through something like this, that you explore professional services. But if you need someone to talk to and connect with on a human level, I'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you have any other thoughts or questions about this episode or ideas you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, you can send them to me at patrick at prgscoach.com. If you also have a unique career story of your own or feel as though you have something to offer the world as far as career development advice goes, I'd also love to hear from you. And with that, I sign off with a certain kind of perfection can only be realized through a limitless accumulation of the imperfect. Thank you again for listening in and we'll talk more in our next episode.